Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today. Katya Kosbeck will look behind the glistening image of Alexei Navalny, the Russian politician beloved of Moscow and Western elites. And Marianella D'Aprile will talk about the shortcomings of mutual aid. I feel like I should say something about the GameStop circus, but I've been talking and writing about it on so many outlets that I'm afraid I'm repeating myself. If you want my views at some length, check out my article on the topic on the Jacobin Magazine website or my appearance on The Daily Show, an extremely satisfying brush with fame, I have to admit, last week. I'll say just two things. One, you can't overturn the financial system by buying stocks. The Redditors may have wounded one hedge fund, but they actually made several others richer, to the tune of over a billion dollars. And two, the incident highlights what a ludicrous institution the stock market is, of little importance to the broad economy or the vast majority of the public that owns few or no stocks. As John Maynard Keynes said, when the capital development of a country becomes the byproduct of the activities of a casino, the job is likely to be ill done. Enough of me. Alexei Navalny is a Russian opposition figure, lawyer, politician, and anti-corruption activist. He's been in the Russian scene for years, but achieved worldwide notice last August when he was poisoned, presumably by the Russian security services. The poison, Novichok, was developed during the Soviet era and is supposedly massively toxic. After treatment in Germany, Navalny survived. Russian President Vladimir Putin denied responsibility for the incident, joking in his inimitable style that had it been the security services, they would have finished the job. Now one of Putin's courts has sent Navalny off to prison, which is certainly no way to treat your political enemy. But that doesn't make him a hero. Navalny has long been the darling of Western media and governments. On January 30th, the New York Times ran a story asserting that he was uniting disparate strands of opposition to Putin, socialists, monarchists, libertarians, behind him. This seems to overstate the case, but Western elites have a long tradition, going back to the late Soviet days, of celebrating opposition figures with little actual support in Russia, outside a small circle of Moscow liberals. On closer inspection, Navalny's image doesn't really survive the myth-making. He has a lot of unsavory beliefs and allies, ones that his fans, at the time, prefer to overlook. The article I mentioned acknowledges in six words that his nationalist politics turned off many liberals without going into details about what those were all about. It also conceded that his brusque style alienated women without noticing that that style included brandishing a gun in his videos, symbolically aimed at ethnic minorities. Here with more about Navalny is Katya Kazbek. Kazbek is a Russian-born, New York-based writer, translator, and editor of the website Supamodu, which, in its own words, is a daily online magazine that explores independent film, art, music, and books from around the world. In the middle of the interview, Kozbek mentions the LDPR, the Liberal Democratic Party of Russia, which, as the cliché runs, is neither liberal nor democratic. It's an authoritarian nationalist party opposed to both communism and neoliberalism that longs to restore Russian imperial greatness. Although it sometimes uses anti-government rhetoric, it generally supports Putin, and there's some speculation that it gets funding from the Kremlin. Okay, here's Katya Kozbek. Western liberals and Western media are in love with Alexei Navalny. There's an article in the Times the other day acknowledging that uh, maybe he had some problems, but people across the political spectrum now are, are uniting behind him as some kind of uh, alternative to the evil Putin. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? What does he stand for? Who is his base, if any? Basically, Alexei Navalny um, is uh, someone who has a 15-year political career in Russia. And um, throughout this career, he has been changing uh, quite a bit, uh, although uh, it seems that uh, he, at least according to a very recent interview uh, with um, the German uh, website Die Spiegel, he has said that uh, his views seem to remain the same as when he started out. 
So he uh, initially started out in um, mid uh, 2000s, and he was a part of this uh, liberal, uh, Western-oriented, free market-oriented party, Yabloka. However, uh, soon there, there became a conflict between that and his uh, involvement in uh, nationalism, uh, for which uh, he was kicked out of uh, Yabloka, and uh, he actually started attending um, nationalist rallies, the so-called Russian When market. you say nationalist, and this isn't just rah-rah Russia, it's nastier than that, right? Yeah, it's uh, basically like uh, uh, his own uh, brand of nationalism was identified by resisting uh, migration from uh, ex-Soviet republics. He recorded a bunch of videos uh, a little bit later after that when he already uh, founded his own uh, movement uh, that was called Narod uh, People, where he uh, compared um, migrants uh, to cockroaches. And um, he also um, actually called himself an avowed nationalist and uh, invited others to join him. And he also uh, showed, uh, like, those videos are uh, interesting because he doesn't specifically say, like, uh, let's uh, kill people from this region and that region or just, like, let's bash migrants. But uh, the visuals and everything, like, they are quite um, an image. And um, yeah, There's one with a gun, right? Where he... Yeah, there is also uh, the one where he talks about cockroaches. He says that uh, if you can't deal with cockroaches and flies uh, using your shoe or swatter, that uh, you should just uh, resort to using a gun. And he has been a staunch uh, gun um, uh, rights supporter. I think this has uh, not wavered throughout his career and he's not been trying to back away from it. Yeah, so, uh, and he also, like, the uh, the nationalist rallies that he participated in, uh, he kept on participating in them until mid uh, 2010s uh, because uh, and those are um, rallies where all kinds of uh, nationalist parties movements um, etc in Russia get together so they're like from uh, like left nationalists right nationalists everything in between and uh, that's uh, where like some people are um, starting to like do the Nazi salute and stuff like that. So uh, and he's gotten a lot of flag for that, and uh, he has stopped going there at one point. However, uh, once again, um, in that that interview that I've mentioned, and also in another interview uh, with the Guardian in 2018, when asked about those videos that he made, he said that he doesn't uh, regret anything. He and he was happy to be able to work uh, as kind of um, a link between uh, nationalists and liberals and that he thinks that uh, comparing migrants to cockroaches is something that he could do as an artistic license. Nationalism um, basically didn't really get him uh, that far either, although he managed to uh, accomplish some stuff, like uh, he protested the building of um, a mosque in um, one of the uh, neighborhoods in Russia, I think actually the one where he uh, where he lives or uh, the one near there, uh, which is something that he, uh, as I understand, picked up when he was uh, spent some time in the U.S. Um, in the U.S., he attended this uh, program um, uh, that's uh, called the World Fellowship at Yale, and uh, his uh, chief of staff and close ally, uh, Leonid, Vol- Leonid Volkov, uh, he also attended that uh, program, as uh, did, for instance, some people who were uh, instrumental in um, the Ukrainian Maidan. And Let me step back a moment. Does he have a background as an intellectual or an academic? I mean, where, where, what's his prehistory before? No, he, no, no. Uh, yeah, that's actually a good question. I, before he went into politics, he he's a lawyer by education. And he also, um, I think he worked in uh, some kind of trading, stock trading or something like that for a while. I don't think he was successful. And he also has a history of uh, working as a lawyer for um, some companies throughout uh, his years uh, that also coincided with his political activity, which uh, basically um, he worked for a lumber company and uh, for a company that deals with cosmetics. And those two companies are at the center of um, the two criminal cases where he was charged for fraud, um, which he uh, calls uh, frame-ups, the European uh, 
uh, Court for the Human Rights uh, considers them um, incorrect and uh, that they should be dismissed. Uh, but uh, like we can't know for sure, I don't think. Uh, but basically, uh, that's also why when he returned from um, Germany recently after his poisoning, he uh, was uh, immediately detained because uh, uh, the fact that he left for Germany to get treatment was um, in violation of his parole because of his susp- uh, suspended sentences. Uh, I think only one of them uh, remains right now. Uh, so yeah, so that's his uh, background. The um, turning point came when uh, he was accepted to this uh, Yale program. He went there and afterwards he's really started uh, gaining momentum um, in uh, Russia, although I'd say rather in Moscow. And uh, he also had um, written, for instance, on his Twitter about how when he was in that Yale program, he participated in his first debate debates in English and uh, very, was very excited about it. And uh, the debates were centered around uh, the building of uh, the mosque in, I think, uh, on Ground Zero. Oh, that. Oh, he's involved in that. That's appalling. Uh, well, I don't think he like actually had to do anything. I think it's just um, that during his uh, course or whatever this fellowship thing uh, at Yale intended, they were just discussing this. So I don't, I don't know if okay, he's not that... cheering Pam Geller on though. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I didn't think it like was any in any way meaningful. But basically, he did repeat the same thing uh, with the mosque in uh, Russia and successfully. There has been a much concerted effort uh, to whitewash his uh, views uh, in the past times because he's a very a staunch populist and basically tries to uh, shift his policies wherever uh, is uh, seems more advantageous. Is he just an opportunist or does he have some kind of deep-seated philosophy of politics? Uh, I don't think so. Um, and I don't, I don't think that he's uh, a, like a downright grifter as well. I think he does really believe that. But I think that mostly it's kind of like he just uh, he is a narcissist uh, to some extent, although that's, of course, um, an emotional evaluation. Uh, but I do think that he does uh, see himself as a leader. He uh, and everything that he does is always centered around his uh, persona. And uh, that's uh, why it's also like uh, you have uh, things like those videos, for instance, where he was there uh, right in front of the camera, not just uh, some voiceover linked to his party, but basically him, because he always wants to uh, be at the front of whatever he's doing. And uh, he still, for instance, has this um, one of those nationalist videos on his uh, personal YouTube account, um, which is verified. Uh, but um, as a nationalism was not going that well, he uh, decided to uh, get more into bed with the uh, neoliberal politics. And uh, since uh, that happened, uh, I guess, with the protests, um, which happened in Russia in uh, approximately 10 years ago after the Duma elections uh, that were deemed uh, fraudulent. Um, and uh, those um, protests, uh, they had a lot of uh, leaders, like there was a whole committee of leaders, but Navalny was uh, one of the most prominent people. And uh, in, the aftermath, uh, in the aftermath of those protests, he also ran for M- Moscow mayor uh, against the incumbent uh, Sergei Sabanin, and he lost, but he did um, basically... Um, if uh, the, the Sergei Sabanin managed to get 51%, if uh, he got 50, then they would have um, another round of uh, the election. This is also when I uh, visited his campaign uh, headquarters uh, when he was running for mayor and uh, came in firsthand with how um, the instruction to volunteers was to deflect any questions about nationalism. And uh, also, like, there was this weird rant from a person uh, who was um, uh, teaching the volunteers to canvas about how we need more uh, Slavic faces in uh, the streets of Russia and uh, they have too many migrants uh, and things like that. So now, That uh, kind of thing, you could imagine that appeals to a populist mass base. But then the pro-market stuff appeals to an elite base. How does he manage to balance those competing um, forces? Uh, yeah, I think uh, he doesn't really do it that well because uh, basically I've been writing a lot about him recently, and it seems like um, that he doesn't really uh, he can't really uh, satisfy any kind of group of people because uh, the nationalists find that he's uh, not uh, Nazi enough, uh, and uh, basically whenever his um, ex um, 
uh, dealings are mentioned uh, or the fact that he didn't really denounce them, they're like, oh, no, that's weak sauce. Uh, he's uh, not uh, really uh, enough of a nationalist. Then uh, liberals, uh, for liberals, he isn't liberal enough. Uh, and he, uh, for um, the um, uh, pro-market people, uh, I think he does have uh, quite a few uh, People who are uh, very much into um, all those privatizations, which are part of his platform. Um, and uh, for instance, uh, like the um, oligarch Khodorkovsky, who was um, put in prison by Putin uh, for um, the um, uh, murder of the mayor of uh, the company town where his um, uh, oil company was uh, Yukos. Um, and uh, he, he, for instance, he lives um, abroad now, but he uh, is giving a lot of money to Navalny and as well as uh, um, support, uh, informational support with his uh, media. And uh, there are a lot of people in his um, uh, circle who are former uh Putin's government members or some or Yeltsin's government members uh, who are connected to different uh, facets of Russian economy. Uh, and for instance, uh, uh, Nemtsov, Boris Nemtsov, who was um, uh, murdered and uh, was another opposition leader. He used to be one of the people who uh, instrumental to the economic reforms in the 90s that um, had uh, successfully plunged uh, a whole lot of people in Russia into uh, an economic depression and poverty. I'm speaking with Katya Kozbek. Now, I would think that having those kinds of associations would make one very unpopular. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, because his aim is towards small business owners, for instance, or also um, he offers in his policy a lot of leeways for people who want to privatize stuff. He is uh, popular among them, although, of course, they are a very small number of uh, people. And uh, we don't count those ones who are already loyal to the existing regime. Um, but uh, among the regular people, he is uh, not popular at all. He scores at 2% uh, approval rates where Putin has a 40 and um, the and uh, Navalny is third with his two but the 4% belong to um, a pro-government uh, nationalist party um, LDPR's leader uh, Zhirinovsky but uh, also uh, like if you take also the popularity of for instance the communist party and LDPR they also have much bigger popularity than him and even after the poisoning, uh, which um, make him way more uh, noticeable even to people who are not into, say, oppositional um, media or uh, into politics in general, he became uh, more, um, uh, like, people became more aware, but uh, the level of trust in him, it did rise, but at the same time, the level of distrust rose as well. So uh, it's kind of like he's getting more awareness, but it's not something that can be garnered for success. So uh, it's, I think it's um, very um, far removed from what's actually happening on the ground in Russia when uh, he is being called uh, the leader of the protest movement, uh, the leader of the opposition, or the or when uh, the protests that are happening right now in Russia are called uh, protests for Navalny, because first of all, not all people are who are protesting there are actually uh, doing this because of him. But and it's also kind of hard to know how many aren't because this kind of like white uh, washes over uh, the such. Uh, nuance. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there are other uh, things that are more important and uh, way more applicable to a larger set of people in Russia than uh, just the support for Navalny that would make them uh, protest instead. Yeah. Now, what about the uh, what's uh, Putin's political uh, status now? Um, he's not as popular as he once was, but um, how strong is the feeling against him? What is correct to say is that uh, that there's uh, not an alternative. Uh, so basically, people, well, not everyone is happy with him and uh, they're increasingly less happy. The biggest thing that uh, Putin has um, in, to his advantage is the fact that life for the people has improved uh, since the 90s. And uh, they are currently feeling uh, way more secure, uh, even though, of course, there it's uh, not much to write home about. But uh, even this small difference is enough uh, and uh, people are saying that 
it's actually not that bad having a business. It's uh, there's le- less racket than there used to be, like in the '90s when everything was uh, mafia infested. And even though uh, his corruption is um, uh, like widespread and uh, uh, especially linked to people who are close to him or his dealings, uh, it uh, somehow like be- becomes a, sort of uh, this weird version of, I guess, the trickle down economics in this uh, sense that uh, like. Uh, the people at the top are very happy so and so the like the rest of the people are can do so 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 uh well it's uh, definitely not preferable and i'm sure that uh given a viable alternative uh, uh the majority of the russian people would uh denounce that uh, i think that uh basically what Navalny has to offer, um, even though he does advocate for, uh, he has recently started advocating, especially um, noticing how popular Bernie Sanders is. Uh, he started advocating for um, in, uh, better wages and better uh, pensions uh, uh, still uh, because it's unclear what's going to happen with him. And uh, because he also uh, is uh, so bent on free markets and um privatizations uh, that people just don't see this as a viable alternative. However, uh, what Putin also has uh, done recently were, uh, for instance, the changes in the constitution, um, which were voted for in a referendum, but still not um, exactly democratically. For instance, he's going to be able to extend uh, his term limits and uh, he's going to be able to stay in power. uh, And then there are also some uh, particular freedoms that are infringed upon, for instance, uh, queer rights, things like that. Although, of course, that's not something that's uh, a universal concern. But the universal concern is that uh, Putin also has uh, implemented a uh, sprawling pension reform, uh, which has um, uh, started uh, last year. And, uh, no, sorry, not last year, in 2019. Um, and uh, he has, uh, it, it has basically increased uh, the um, uh, retirement age by five years for uh, most people. And uh, except for like, for instance, like indigenous people who are exempt of that. But um, right now for men, uh, it's uh, a couple years before uh, the age, um, the, the medium uh, age, uh, death age uh, in Russia. So basically, while uh, women, I think, li- will, are going to live like for 20 years after uh, retirement, men are now supposed to retire and uh, die soon afterwards. So that's something that has um, been talked about a lot and angering a lot of people. Uh, however, uh, there have not been overwhelming protests against that. Uh, and uh, I'm not exactly sure why. Uh, I think that it's just um, no, uh, not enough uh, political uh, and uh, class struggle has been garnered in that um, sense. But uh, I think that despite that, there has been uh, quite a lot of organizing uh, based on that. Uh, and it has propelled, the, for instance, the power of unions, and they have been uh, rising all across uh, the country uh, in the past few years, especially. And uh, so that's very noticeable. Now, I'm guessing um, that given the coverage that we see in the Western media, Washington and other Western capitals would like to see Navalny uh, replace Putin. Is he some sort of favored uh, um, candidate of uh, the Western imperial class? Yeah, I think it's just basically uh, those uh, oligarchs and uh, who are not uh, included in the current system, or like, for instance, like Khodorkovsky or like some others, uh, because I think, for instance, like uh, Mikhail Friedman, one of the other uh, large uh, bankers who were uh, like the, in the so-called seven bankers period um, uh, during Yeltsin's time, who were essentially like running things. Uh, he uh, has supported Navalny. The bet on Navalny is a way to and that's something that a lot of people are saying, even if uh, they don't uh, want to support this uh, in terms of uh, like the neoliberal aspects of it, uh, that, uh, that um, Abedin Navalny is just uh, to ensure that there is a, a change of regime, because that and corruption seem to be uh, the main two uh, preoccupying uh, things uh, with the, the current situation Um among Navalny supporters, although uh, in general they also are big concerns for anyone uh, from the whole side of the spec, uh, from any side of the spectrum, because uh, they are probably two of the biggest issues uh, tied in together. Because corruption doesn't allow the country to develop as uh, it could have, and also is really detrimental to the regions, especially because uh, even though you have uh, free medicine, free education 
everything in terms of social services is very limited because uh, money gets stolen uh, on the way there uh, to the regions. Um, so, yeah, and uh, that's uh, so those uh, who see themselves uh, making it in the new government are very excited about this. But um that obviously doesn't um, extend to the general population because uh, it's pro- probably going to be the same uh, or unfortunately probably even worse, which uh, is something that we have, for instance, seen in uh, Ukraine where after the Maidan, uh, the economic situation uh, plummeted and uh, has uh, been uh, in a recession for a while now. Yeah, it seems like a lot of these forces that you're talking about are the ones that brought Russia to ruin 20 years ago, and uh, they're going to make a comeback. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's uh, something that's uh, that people are very, very uh, afraid of, uh, because uh, the 90s were just such a dark times with uh, so, so many uh, losing their jobs because of uh, privatizations and factories and uh, the uh, economic reforms. And uh, so many were uh, uh, just uh, downright murdered uh, or like lost their relatives uh, or some possessions because um, the mafia was rampant. Uh, and just uh, like rel- the relative peace uh, that exists right now, even though, of course, uh, you cannot exactly call uh, Putin uh, uh, super peaceful in terms that he does persecute everyone uh, who is uh, against his uh, politics and uh, like be it uh, Navalny himself or communists or um, people in between. Uh, so th- there's definitely uh, this uh, very big fear, especially when you have uh, figures from uh, the 90s who uh, very prominently appearing and uh, making a claim in this uh, expected uh, Russia under Navalny. That was Katya Kozbek, a Russian-born writer and translator now based in New York, and editor of the online magazine Supamodu, S-U-P-A-M-O-D-U dot com, which looks at culture around the world. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. a version of the Russian national anthem performed an electric guitar in the spirit of Jimi Hendrix's rendition of the Star Spangled Banner by Sean Atwood DeVries. I don't know anything else about this version other than I found it on the internet about five or seven years ago and now I can't find a trace of it. The Russian national anthem uses the same tune, though with different words, as the old Soviet anthem, which says something about historical ghosts. That pedigree annoyed Russian anti-communists, Boris Yeltsin, who drove the country to ruin with the assistance of the Clinton administration, complained that Putin should not have blindly followed the will of the people in selecting the anthem. And Yabloko, the liberal party that Navalny was associated with for a while, complained that it deepened the schisms in Russian society, which is funny coming from a party that has very little popular support. Next, mutual aid, a term that has come up during the pandemic as state aid has so often been missing in action. Of course, humans have always helped each other out in times of crisis, but as a political concept, mutual aid has deep roots in anarchist thought. It is notably the title of a collection of essays by the anarchist philosopher Peter Kropotkin. The idea is that people should take care of each other in non-hierarchical voluntary fashion. It's intended not only to alleviate suffering, but also to prefigure a post-capitalist society, one characterized by egalitarianism, free association, and solidarity without the heavy, coercive hand of the state or large-scale bureaucracy. 
While mutual aid sits comfortably in the anarchist tradition, its relationship with socialist and social democratic politics is more problematic. Socialists and social democrats are far friendlier to the idea of organization on a scale larger than the face-to-face scale of mutual aid. Marianella de Aprile, a member of the National Political Committee of the Democratic Socialists of America, has an article criticizing the concept in the February issue of In These Times. Here she is with more. Marianella de Aprile. I recall back at the time of Hurricane Sandy in New York City, um, the response of the government was really, really poor. Um, people were desperate, homeless, hungry, all kinds of you know standard human miseries after a natural disaster. Um, and there was a big move shortly after um, Occupy Wall Street, and there all those networks were very much intact and easily um, re-energized. There was a lot of um, mutual aid going on. And at the time, I was not quite sure of how to think about it, whether it was good in itself, you know, the uh, the pointing to a better future, or it was just um, doing the best in a situation where the state's response was so desperately inadequate. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Mutual aid has a long history in anarchist politics, but what are your thoughts on how it should uh, figure in socialist politics? Yeah, there are going to be times when we look around and we see that nothing is being done and that, you know, unless we take things matters into our own hands, nothing is going to be done. And that was probably the case then. Certainly, I think that's been the case over the last year of the pandemic. I think people are suffering in really, really deep ways. And um, it makes total sense to me that people who are socialists, who are committed to the betterment of our collective lives, would also be invested in helping, you know, help directly helping other people around them. Um, and I think that there's there there are going to be times when we feel called to do that. I think, though, that our project can't be limited to just to just that. And I think anytime that we do engage in, you know, projects of direct service, we have to be thinking about how can we use them to actually build long lasting organization and power for the working class. And I think that's a very, very hard question to answer. And I think, it, you know, probably or almost definitely will vary from context to context, city to city. But, you know, I often think about how I I don't want to end up in a situation where the work that we're doing is perceived as charity or that people feel that they owe, they owe something to the people that are helping them. Like, like, you know, sort of like joining the organization as a kind of requirement to receiving whatever it is that you might be getting a coat, a hot meal or whatever. I think we want to avoid those kinds of situations. I think we have to be uh, cognizant of the fact that those are sort of hard to avoid because like the, because I think the charity model is so prevalent in in a lot of like American sort of activism um, or has been for a long time. So there are certainly going to be moments where we feel called to participate in direct service and we should not shy from that. Um, at the same time, I think that we always need to be doing that in the service of of building working class power and building our movement. And I mean, I can give examples of that, too. It fits nicely into um, anarchist philosophy. It's non-state. You know, it's very mm-hmm. um, localized. It's very uh, non-coercive. It f- doesn't fit quite so easily in, in socialist politics. But, you know, what, what mm-hmm. do social, socialist politics tell us about living our daily lives. I mean, we don't want to do charity. We don't want to make aid contingent upon um, joining an organization. But you know, how should we think more clearly about um, these kinds of relationships? Yeah, it's a good It's a great question. I'm a socialist because I believe that our the power to change things in the world comes when working class people get together and they exercise, I think, the, the most powerful tool that they have, which is withholding their labor in order to extract concessions and win the things that they deserve. Right now, that sounds probably quite abstract to a lot of people, just because we look at the numbers, right? Like 10% of the workforce in this country is is unionized. And there's not a lot of experience with like democratic decision making and, and wielding of collective power at all. And so our individual or personal lives have, have in many, many ways become the primary site of everything, but especially of politics. There's a kind of general habit. I, I don't think so much on the left, but certainly, you know, among liberals that that's sort of where you exercise where you exercise your politics which is really sort of like your your own personal opinions is like on in your personal life and so i think following from that logic it can be really easy to say well you know i'm i volunteer at a soup kitchen or i you know collect clothes for a drive or something like that and 
and again, I, I think that's all fine and well. People feel called to do that. And I think often there's going to be the need for that. I think that we need to, we as socialists, if, if we want to think about helping each other on a kind of individual person to person level, fulfill our daily needs, we also need to f- figure out how that feeds into a larger project, again, of building our organization, building working class power. I mean, I think some of the most obvious examples of that are the work that DSA has done um, around um, strike support. Yeah, you discussed that, uh, the, the, the support for the Oakland teachers. Uh, you know, draw out that distinction. It's an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, when in 2019, in the fall of 2019, CTU here in Chicago, um, the Chicago Teachers Union went on strike. They were out for, I think, three weeks. Um, we, Chicago DSA, organized uh, what we, a program called Bread for Ed, um, and we we put together meals for a, a lot of them were for actually students, right, who had depended on going to school to eat, you know, usually at least, you know, two, at least one, but usually or oftentimes two meals a day. And um, this is obviously a very, very strong tool that the boss has to say, well, look at these teachers, they're out, they're on strike, and they are denying their students not only education, they're also denying their students meals. And so what we did was say, was take that away. We took away that tool that the mayor had, that CPS had to make the teachers seem like the villains. We took that away by saying, we are going to fulfill this need for um, these students. And some teachers too, I think um, definitely like were some of the meals, I, I mean, went to teachers as well. And so that, that I think is an example of direct service. Absolutely. But it was in, it was also in the service of helping these the teachers help and helping the union retain its power and being able to exercise that or use that tool that I was talking about of, of withholding their labor to get what they wanted. Yeah, now I can hear some people, to use that uh, phrase that Bhaskar Sankara um, revived, but I think it has its origins in Tito's Yugoslavia, the anarcho-liberals saying, um, well, you seem to care more about humanity in the abstract and your organization than you do about actual people. And uh, you know, they'll wag your fingers at you for being you know, cold and, and instrumental about um, your willingness to aid people in distress. So how, how would you respond to that? I became a socialist because I have nothing, I have nothing but um, absolute love for people. And I think that the only way that we're going to, that we're going to get the world that we deserve, where everyone gets to thrive, where all people get to thrive is, is through class struggle. I think that's the only way that um, change actually happens. I think that that has been proven by history and we don't even have to look, you know, we don't even have to look that far to, to see that borne out in history. Um, I mean, to, to use like the most popular example, look at, you know, what Sarah Nelson, the flight attendants were able to achieve in ending the government shutdown just a few years ago. Um, and I think that building the power to do that and being, I don't, sure, yeah, I, I will cop. Sometimes we do have to be cold and calculating in order to build strategies that are that will work in order to give us that world where we all get to like fully experience our warm and not calculating humanity. Yes, absolutely. And I think that there is also time is limited after all, right? That's right. That's right. Yes, that's right. And I think that our, our time is, is limited there. There are only, you know, something I think about often is that there are only so many socialists in the world. I mean, I would like to make a lot more of them. Obviously, and that's that's a huge part of what I've committed my life to doing is making more socialists and organizing them. And we have a very specific contribution to make. And so I think when it comes down to thinking about what is it that socialists specifically should spend their time on, I think that, you know, I think socialists are the only people who are um, or some of the only people who are going to dedicate time and energy to this this project of building working class organization through unions, through organizations like DSA and building working class power and then pointing it in the direction of capital to extract concessions. And I think that that is that is the role of socialists and that is the role of socialist movements. And I think that it's very different that the tasks that we do as political actors and political people are different than what we do in our purse in our personal lives like for example you know okay i live in chicago and i have spent 
the last we just had this blizzard come through over the weekend it snowed for like 72 hours straight and i've spent you know every day for the since then every time i go outside i'm you know helping some helping someone dig out their car or like pushing someone over like a snowbank or something or you know or people are helping me like get my you know i'm walking my dog like get my dog over a snowbank because the snow is, is piled really really high my belief that we have to be strategic and and yes, and absolutely cold and calculating uh, does not interfere with my ability to be warm and kind to other people. And, you know, I have to say, our enemy, the capitalist class, is cold and calculating, and they know exactly the tools that they have in their tool belt, and they're ruthless, and they're not afraid to use them against us. And we should not be afraid to use them against them. Well, also uh, among the tools in that capitalist tool belt are um, philanthropy, charity. I mean, that's a very important part yes. of their power. Absolutely. 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 And I think that that's, I think frequently about how charity and philanthropy are used both to, to, to sort of placate people politically, I think in two ways. One, you know, if you're being asked to, to be charitable or to, or to give, you know, that that can be your contribution. But then if you if you have some needs that are being fulfilled by philanthropy or by charity, then you have this sort of like short term solution that that blinds you or can blind you to figuring out how to how to win a more long term solution to the needs that you face. Um, and I think as socialists, we have to um, be constantly fighting against that the the effect both of those effects of the of the kind of philanthropy and charity at the hands of of capitalists i'm speaking with marianella de aprile uh, now, some years ago there's a, a controversy within dsa i think it's receded some but the uh, the brake light clinics uh, the idea was uh, to um, fix brake lights uh, for people mostly poor black people uh, to help them avoid getting stopped by the cops and then run into very serious trouble with the police. A lot of people thought that would be a way to win friends and do a good deed at the same time. Uh, there was some drawing, pointing to the model of the Black Panther Party's free breakfast program, uh, which I think had those dual goals as well. Where did you stand in that controversy? I, at the time, I'm trying to remember exactly when that was and if I had moved to Chicago yet. I can't remember. I think it's around 2016. Yeah, I think it was 2016. I think it was before I had moved to Chicago. Um, just I, I, this is I'm just saying this to jog my own memory. But where I stood was that that was not the the place that we should be spending our time. I felt like it was a, a charity project. You know, I think I think there is there are some differences between the uh, free breakfast program that the Black Panthers were were leading. Um, in particular, you know, I don't think that the what was being put forward with the brake lights at the time. My point is that at the time, I felt like there was a lot of energy around what was then a still kind of incipient campaign for Medicare for All. And energy had been building around Medicare for All. I think I, well, I, was, in Cal I was living in California at the time, and there was a state bill that we were starting to organize around. And I felt like this was the thing to do if we wanted to build our organization and if we wanted to speak to people who were working class, who were maybe not in the demographics that would have automatically joined DSA, um, right? So like people of color um, in particular. Um, and this, I felt like that was something that would disproportionately benefit people's lives and people's material conditions and so we could speak to them about that and bring and bring them in through the organization in that way um, bring them into the organization with the message that DSA and the socialist movement more broadly is a place where they could fight for the things that they deserve and the things that they need and to me that was much more powerful than what I felt the brake light clinics were doing, which was saying, well, you know, here are your nice, friendly neighborhood socialists who are going to do this nice thing for you. Um, and maybe you'll get some, a little bit of political education out of it. And maybe you'll hear what DSA is about. But for me, the question has always been, how do we, how do we build power by bringing people in to the socialist movement 
by presenting it as the place where I know and, you know, my comrades know uh, the, it's the, the only place where we can do what we need to do in this world, which is fight for the things that we believe in through getting ourselves organized and moving in large groups of people sort of in, in the same direction, both literally and figuratively. And so at the time I was, I, I guess that's where I stood at the time to answer your, your original question is just, I, I thought, you know, we, DSA was still very much incipient. I think uh, at that time we didn't even have 10,000 members and I thought, the place to put our energy is. Oh, you're an early uh, member. <laughs> well, early, quote unquote. I joined yeah, by in 2016. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I joined in 2016. So I thought we need to be building this organization into a mass organization. And the way we're going to do that is by making, uh, by building campaigns around mass demands. And that doesn't mean that those campaigns can't have very localized elements that respond to very local conditions. I think that absolutely need actually i think that's a prerequisite of any good campaign and and even some of those elements might even include direct service but i think you know kind of doing a direct service on on its own exclusively which i thought i think the bright legs clinic clinics are as i understand them are uh an example of that i think that's just insufficient and and not a not a strategic use of our time in, the, in this times piece, you say, in this time of unbearable crisis and human suffering, I'm hard-pressed to find a good reason to tell my comrades that they shouldn't donate uh, to a food pantry or uh, collect outerwear to give to families. Um, but obviously, this conflicts with some of your political thinking. How have you resolved this conflict in your head? Are you still um, up in the air about it? No, I'm not. I don't think I'm up in the air at all. I think it relates to what I was saying earlier. Maybe this only makes sense to me and not to other people. But, um, uh, <laughs> but I... I think that there are actions that we take as political actors and as uh, political organizers and as socialists. And I think all of those are are almost exclusively taken with our comrades, decided upon with other people. You know, DSA is an incredibly democratic organization. We have processes for deliberation and decision making that, af that affect the organization, that have results on the organization and the kinds of things that the kind of projects and campaigns that we take on. And I think there's, so I think there's a difference between that and, and the things that we do in our personal lives. Like I would never tell my comrade who was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm collecting cans for, you know, a food pantry. I would never be like, oh, that's a really bad idea. Like if you want to do that as like an individual, I think that's, that's totally fine. And again, I think that relates to my, what I was saying earlier about, I just, I don't believe that um, our individual lives are the side of our politics and and politics and political action, um, I think, only happens um, in collective, deliberative, and democratic spaces. So um, any kinds of action should, at best, be um, oriented towards some longer-term goal and not just day-to-day uh, -day, uh, relief. I think so, right? So let's say that same person who I, that, that, that person that I just invented, who was collecting cans to take to a food pantry, comes to a meeting um, of, you know, uh, like a DSA meeting and proposes to, to take on as a, as a chapter project or something, I would want to know, I, I, what I would, what I would want that person to answer is how is this building work last, long lasting working class organization and how is it making more socialist? How is it helping us build DSA? You know, I, and, and to tie back to the example I was using earlier, because I, I think I would ask that question, not, not just of a direct service project. I would ask that question of any, any campaign or anything that was being proposed to being taken on by DSA. You know, I would ask, how is it, how is it building working class power? How is it building DSA and how is it making more socialists? And Again, to tie it back to the example that I used earlier of Brett for Ed, I think that project or that campaign answers those questions pretty well. You know, I think it was, again, building the power of teachers or helping bolster the power of teachers to stay out on strike when when there was a, obviously something that was going to be used against them in the form of, you know, blaming them for their kids going starving. I think it also helped us build um, organizational relationships between Chicago DSA and SEIU 73 and the CTU, which was really, really crucial and important. And I think it also helped us have conversations about why people were out fighting and and what that meant and what it meant to exercise 
their power in their union um, and how that related to the politics that we were there representing. You know, DSA members, Chicago DSA members were out on the picket line every single every single day um, of the strike. And and in many ways, you know, I don't know, I guess you could you could probably think of that as as an opening to to creating more socialists. Okay, and to take it back finally to the um, what I opened with uh, this the uh, the Hurricane Sandy relief and its relation to Occupy. We've been talking consistently about the importance of organization and building an organization with with goals. And a lot of people around Occupy were hostile to the both the idea of organization and goals. So this seems to be a really uh, bright line difference between um, these two approaches to politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. You know, I was not politically active around Occupy and I was much younger <laughs> than I am now. Um I was not politically active around Occupy. Um but so I can't, you know, speak super directly to the arguments that were being made, but um I do think that there is a distinct difference between a kind of an anarchist project and a socialist project and you know without getting too far into questions of like who controls the state i think fundamentally i think yes absolutely socialists do have goals i mean i think immediately it is extracting material wins from the capitalist class i think that and that is that is a goal and we have to have that goal and then we have to have a plan to get there and we have to have people moving in concert to get there and and exercising whatever power they have in order to get there. And in order to get people moving in concert, you need organization. And then, you know, we obviously there's, you know, much longer term goals um, and also like subsidiary goals to all of that. But I, I'm invested in that, in this idea that, you know, we're we're not going to get, um, we're not going to get anywhere. I don't think without, um, without, organization. That's true. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> All right. Thanks That's a lot. Great. That was Maria Nella de Aprile, a member of the National Political Committee, the governing body of DSA, and author of a critique of mutual aid in the February issue of In These Times. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. I played a couple of bits recently featuring the flutist Claire Chase, which attracted an unusual amount of subsequent email interest. Here's some more of her work. This an excerpt from Terrest by the Finnish composer Kaya Sarayo. She performs with the International Contemporary Ensemble. Till next week, bye. Oh, <laughs> 